0: At Les Schwab Tires, we figure if you're looking for an adventure, you probably don't mean car trouble. That's why we offer free pre-trip safety checks. So instead of dealing with a busted rear strut, you're off enjoying a roller coaster or Colorado's biggest stake. Why get hung up with a blown tire when what you really want to find is the West Coast's largest possum statue? So stop on by before your next trip. We'll get you good to go all for free. Les Schwab Tires. Doing the right thing matters.
1: Log Talk Radio.
2: Hello.
1: Hi, Barry. This is Heather. You wanna stand by for a couple minutes and we'll get um Andrew on the phone here?
2: Okay.
3: Hello, this is Andrew.
1: Hi, Andrew. Um, Are you using a speaker
3: or a hands-free? Okay, I'm going to
1: ask you to not use the hands-free because it really takes away from the audio quality.
3: Then uh, we need to find a different solution because if I don't use hands-free, you won't be able to hear me.
1: I won't be what?
3: You won't be able to hear me.
1: Okay. Well, then we'll just do the best we can. Okay.
3: Call me back once more, and I'll pick up on uh, a different device and see if that's better than this.
1: No. You know what? It's okay. Um, it's not that bad. Um, but it does. It just has a little bit of an echo. So let's just go ahead and get started. I know you guys have your time is precious, and so I don't want to waste a bunch of time. And it's not. That, it doesn't sound that bad. Barry, are you standing by? I'm here. Okay, and can you hear, Andrew?
2: All too much.
1: (laughs) Okay, then let's just go ahead and go, Andrew, if that's okay with you. That's great. Okay, here we go. In three, two, and one. Hello and welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some tough topics. We have a tough topic today, but it's also a very hopeful topic. And my special guests are Barry Goldstein. And Barry, you are a uh, nationally recognized domestic violence author, speaker, advocate, your co-chair of the Child Custody Task Group for NOMIS. And you also serve as director of research for the Stop Abuse Campaign. And Andrew, you are the uh, uh, originator, the founder of the Stop Abuse Campaign, and you have a very colorful history. You should tell us your history, I, and I won't do it justice if I just read
3: from something.
1: Tell us how you, you came to uh, the Stop Abuse Campaign.
3: Well, I'm a marketer by trade. I, um, I'm a madman of Madison Avenue. I've been running global, big global advertising accounts um, for about 20, 25 years. And then after a traumatic series of experiences, the results of childhood trauma, um, I decided that it was time that somebody did something about this. And so uh, I started the Stop Abuse campaign to prevent childhood trauma.
1: Barry, how did you get involved in the Stop Abuse campaign?
3: Um,
2: A friend introduced me to Andrew, and we found that the work we were doing um, has a close connection. And Andrew at the time was learning about the child custody crisis, and um, it was around the time I was putting together the Quincy Solution and the Safe Child Act, and it was just a good match.
1: Great, great. Well, and we have done a number of shows, a number of programs about the crisis in family courts and the problem with child custody and how very many children are being hurt and protective mothers are being hurt by the decisions that the courts are making. We've talked a lot about the research. We recently had Joan Meyer on the show talking about her latest research on how courts, family courts, deal with uh, allegations of abuse and um, alienation We have done a lot of of programs, and, Barry, you've been with us before on some of these programs. So we've outlined and we talked quite a bit about the problem. But today I'm hopeful that we're going to be talking a little bit about the solution. We're going to be talking about the Safe Child Act. Now, Barry, why don't you review the courts and, and the fact that they're in crisis before we delve into the Safe Child Act?
2: Okay, I mean, one of the things we might do is just share a few examples of the kinds of cases that we hear all too often. Um, one case um, in California involving my friend Karen Anderson, um, and what happened was that her two daughters revealed that their father was sexually abusing them, and they went therapy and it was confirmed that he was sexually abusing them and initially um, criminal charges were brought but for really no good reason other than maybe improper influence um, the charges were dropped and he sought uh, custody even though he had little involvement with the children before that and they had a, an evaluator who on the stand, testified, he said, you know, I don't listen to children about the stock market, so why should I listen to them about sexual abuse? And I can't listen to the um, therapists because they're clearly biased. And so he instead used parental alienation syndrome, uh, which is a bogus theory that has been rejected by the American Psychiatric Association and every other reputable um, professional organization. Um, But he used that to um, create what the Saunders study calls a harmful outcome case. The alleged abuser gets custody, and a safe, protective mother is limited to supervised visitation. And the son, um, who was the older brother of the two girls who were sexually abused by their father, um, described being in the father's home at night, and he'd be lying in his bed, and he would hear his father go into the girls' room to rape them. And to this day, he blames himself for not stopping it. And um, what happened was the court imposed uh, what they called reunification therapy, Jeff more appropriately referred to it as threat therapy, and, you know, it was really scary and painful. And eventually um, the uh, evaluator lost his license for using a bogus theory like PAS, Um, but the court kept delaying the case because they didn't want to admit you know, that they had failed the children. Um, Jeff basically ran away when he was about 16, returned to his mother, um, and stayed there the rest of his minority. The two girls really had a horrible time. Um, They were estranged from their mother um, and, you know, are really doing very poorly. Um, And, you know, a century when they became 18 the father basically abandoned them. Um, And Jeff went on to be one of the leaders and founders of the Courageous Kids group, which are children who have aged out of the court system and are speaking out in order to help other children, um, including at the time he was hoping he might be able to save his sisters. Um, Unfortunately, that didn't uh, prevail. Um, Another case that um, I worked in, it was a case in New Jersey where a young girl who was about four or five um, reported to her mother that her father had physically and, I'm sorry, had her father and her grandmother, the father's mother, had touched her inappropriately and the mother um, filed for custody in a protective order. Uh, notified DIFIS, which is the Child Protective Agency in New Jersey. Um, And they proceeded to make all of the standard mistakes that Child Protective and other professionals make. They expected the child to quickly, you know, talk about a very... Painful and embarrassing subject. After she had been interviewed many times, she had a bland effect, and they treated that as if it proved the mother coached the child. And again, they created the harmful outcome case, which Dr. Saunders found is always wrong. Um, they gave the abusive father custody. The mother was limited to supervised visits. And during the first visit, uh, the child had a letter for the mother. And in the letter, the child said, I'm sorry, I'm such a bad girl. Oh. You see.
1: Oh, that breaks my heart.
2: Yes. She thought that because she had told about the father's abuse, that she received the worst punishment in her life. She lost her mommy. And ultimately, um, you know, the mother, you know, tried to get it in front of the court, you know, tried to protect her child. Um, She was required to go to joint therapy with her abuser. In the course of the therapy, it came out that the father had uh, a protective order against him from his prior uh, girlfriend, because he had attempted to break into her home after she, after they uh, separated, um, but the therapist that Difus had selected and used in a lot of cases didn't understand the significance of that information and just continued on as if nothing happened. Um, eventually, Difus uh, asked another psychologist to review the file, and this would be the one professional that Difus selected who actually was familiar with research and cited research in her report, which, you know, recognized that the father was a domestic abuser, recognized that the reasons that um, Difus assumed the mother had coached the child were not even probative um, and recommended that the child be immediately returned to the mother. Dyfus thanked the psychologist for her work and ignored it. And the judge, the judge twice refused to listen to my testimony because she didn't want anything on the record that demonstrated that the court had failed this girl. The mother eventually had to stop raising the issue of abuse in order to... Be able to see the child without supervisors and and it really goes to the court practices of silencing any complaints and so mothers and especially attorneys tend to discourage um, the presentation of abuse information which undermines the ability of courts to protect children and you know silences victims, uh, both of which are big, big mistakes. And so the yeah. child grew up in a pretend world where she was dealing with the yeah. idea that she had made false reports and, of course, could not get the treatment that the ACE research said she needed. Um, and so it really, as you said, a really horrific case. And um, one other case we wanted to talk to talk about that, Andrew. Well,
1: can I interrupt you for just a second, Barry? Because I want to get um, uh, Andrew in here. Andrew, um, Barry mentioned the ACEs study. Um, can you explain that very briefly for our listeners?
3: Yes, the ACEs study was done in uh, the 1990s, and it's a piece of uh, research that looked at the uh, looked at the impact of childhood trauma on the later lives of children. Now, we've always known that uh, childhood trauma, being raped as a child or being beaten as a child, had some impact on people in their later lives. We just didn't know how much impact it had. And we now know that 10 forms of childhood trauma are substantially responsible for the seven leading causes of death in the United States. Ten forms of childhood trauma substantially responsible for the seven leading causes of death. To me, that's groundbreaking research, because if we could just prevent those ten forms of childhood trauma, think of the difference we could make in terms of the world, not only by preventing the pain that those children go through, but also preventing the shorter and sicker lives that they go on to lead. Now, in these forms of childhood trauma, you find domestic violence or witnessing domestic violence is, is one of those forms of trauma. And unfortunately, when children are witnessing domestic violence, they're usually living in a household, or they are living in a household, where there is an abuser. And so abusers tend not to only abuse in one way. So these children are highly likely to be suffering from other forms of abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. They're likely to be suffering from forms of neglect. Um, And they're likely also to have in these households mental illness, or drugs being used, alcohol being used. Um, and so very quickly, what a child can go from having one form of childhood trauma to far more. Now, if I may, I'll just talk a second about the impact of these forms of, the, these forms of trauma. We call them adverse childhood experiences because that's what the study was called. And we come up with an ACE score, which means we count up the number of forms of trauma that you've experienced, and that gives you an ACE score. So for instance, my ACE score is five. And so if you look at somebody like me with a score of five or higher, my chances of becoming an alcoholic are four times higher than a child that wasn't traumatized, chronic depression, uh, problems working, financial problems, um, suicide. The chance of my attempting suicide, and I did in 2008. I swallowed 300 Tylenol PM and said goodbye to the world. The chances of me doing that are nine times higher than somebody who hasn't suffered from trauma. I I carry the risk, as do other children who have been traumatized, a higher risk of cancer, coronary heart disease, adult onset diabetes. So, Heather, you know, if we can stop these forms of trauma, then we can change the world. And there's one form of trauma that seems to me almost more abhorrent than any other. And that's when the courts of the United States States of America effectively sentence children to be returned to their rapists, to their abusers, for custody. That, to me, is just so abhorrent. I was raped when I was 10. And I cannot imagine, I just cannot imagine how a child must feel when the court says you need to go and live with your rapist. It's unconscionable behavior. And so I'm really happy that we're working with Barry as part of our team to prevent this from happening anymore.
1: Well, uh, we did have Dr. Vincent Folletti on the show about two months ago, uh, Andrew, and so if anybody wants to hear more about the ACEs study, um, just go through our, our archive and uh, back up about two months and you'll see uh, the show where Dr. Vincent Folletti was on our program. He was the primary. He was, he's a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, and he was the primary uh, author of the ACEs study that he did through uh, Kaiser Permanente. So it's a fascinating study. And it explains a lot of things So thank you for that explanation, Andrew And Barry, I want to come back to you Because you've talked about some really egregious cases And listeners may be sitting there going Wow, well certainly that's rare Um, Certainly that doesn't happen very often But in fact it does, doesn't it? That children are given over to their abusers And ripped away from their protective parent Are you with us, Barry?
2: I'm sorry um, I'm sure okay. that when you okay. interviewed Joan Meyer, um, she mentioned that 94% of reports of child sexual abuse are disbelieved by the courts. And that is outrageous, particularly when we know from the ACE study that about a quarter of our children in this country are sexually abused before they re- reach the age of 18. Um, I don't know how our country can tolerate that
1: I I absolutely agree with you and so when women I I know personally a woman who thought she was in a happy marriage her child was having some problems but not major problems very young child by the way and one day she got a phone call from the school saying your child is acting out sexually Um, we suspect that something has happened to this child so she immediately took the child to the doctor the doctor said yes this child has been sexually abused And then she took the child to a psychologist and the child told the psychologist, daddy did it. So the woman immediately filed for divorce and filed for custody of her children. And after several months of going through the process of divorcing, the judge said to her, well, you didn't ever make any allegations of child sexual molestation against your husband until you went up against him in court. And the judge didn't, terminate her parental rights, but he didn't do anything about ordering supervised parental, uh, parental visitations or anything else with the father. I, it, it, this gobs smacks me. Um, and I have always said that courts seem to operate under three premises. One is that just because a father hurts the mother doesn't mean he's going to hurt the children. The other one is that every father and every child have to have a relationship which um, uh, astounds me because if a person is dangerous to the child, who cares what their relationship is with that child? Keep she keep the child away from that person. And the third premise is she lies no matter what. She lies. And we see this so often, don't we?
2: Yeah, and fundamentally, the Saunders study found that court professionals who do not have the specific training and knowledge in domestic violence that they need say and believe exactly what that judge said out loud, you know, that he was disbelieving the mother. And that's, that's a common problem that professionals who do not have the training they need, which is most of the professionals in the court system, tend to focus on the myth that mothers frequently make false reports when in reality they make false reports less than 2% of the time. And that mistaken belief in and of itself very much contributes to children being forced to live with their rapists.
3: And of course, it's not just being forced to live with a rapist. There's another really sad result that comes from these cases, and that's that's children dying. We had a case not so long ago in New York where a a policeman who had been uh, with the force for 22 years, had a really good record, was seen as a well-standing member of the community and a great policeman. And then shortly after he retired, he uh, killed his two daughters who were asleep in the house at the time and killed the three dogs. Um, His wife and the eldest child escaped uh, because they had gone off to a uh, to, uh, uh, casino for the night. Now, strangely, what happened after this was, of course, everyone wanted to know how it could possibly have happened, how a policeman who had such a good reputation, was such a good father, was such a great member of the community, how he could have possibly murdered his children and the docks. And the answer um, they sought from psychologists, and the psychologists came up with some uh, theories uh, um, about how he might have been impacted by some sort of a psychiatric condition. But they kind of felt it was a little bit unlikely that that was the case. The police had no explanation because they knew this man in his public persona as an excellent police officer. They also contacted Barry, and of course, Barry is an expert in domestic violence and custody issues, and he put his finger right on the button. This was a man who behaved perfectly in public. His public image was wonderful, but of course, it was different at home, and his wife had recently told him that she wanted to separate, and of course, that's the most dangerous time in a relationship for women who are suffering from domestic violence or coercive control, from from uh, abusers who believe that a woman has no right to leave him, and he expressed that feeling by shooting his daughters and the dog. And there are many, many stories about children being murdered in these sorts of cases. I was say, if you hear about a murder-suicide where the father has killed children and potentially a mother and then himself, just look straight to what's happening in terms of domestic violence and custody disputes, and you'll get pretty close to the answer.
1: You know, I taught a a session for a group of women journalists in Virginia uh, last year, and I taught the session on how to report domestic violence, and I've been collecting newspaper articles about um, femicide situations, like just as you have described. And invariably, invariably, the first thing that the newspaper reports is what a what, what a wonderful guy the father was. Just what a wonderful guy. This just came out of nowhere. Oh, he's been having money money problems. They immediately search for some reason that he just kind of snapped and right. did this. Rarely do they talk about domestic violence, um, and and I don't know how to fix that. Um, I don't know how to fix that. It's
3: a. a well, strangely, we talked. We talked about but the Saunders. Barry mentioned the Saunders study a moment ago, and the Saunders study shows that the courts and court professionals don't really understand domestic violence and how how it impacts these custody cases. Well, of course. The courts are no different to the rest of us. Most of us don't really understand domestic violence. It's a subject until the 1970s, early 1980s. It was a little bit like cancer. It was something that we didn't even talk about. We didn't want to mention it. It was somebody else's problems, not for us to interfere in. And of course, now we've, over a very short period of time, relatively over the last sort of 20, 30 years, We've got real experts in domestic violence. We've got people like Barry who really, really understand this. The problem is the courts aren't listening to them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Barry, back to you, because one of the things that we're finding because of the situation, this egregious situation in family court, is that lawyers are advising their clients to just shut up about sexual abuse or other kinds of abuse. Is that true?
2: Yeah, it's very true. It's interesting. Um, The Stop Abuse Campaign has had a lot of contact recently with the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, which tends to be the best organization of judicial leaders. And we've talked to them about exactly that. And, you you know, we're starting with most attorneys do not have the training or the understanding to begin with. And then when you have judges who act in ways that make it seem like they don't want to hear domestic violence and child sexual abuse evidence, um, it very much influences attorneys not to present the evidence. And then the other thing is the worst judges um, Mm -hmm. punish um, mothers um, for raising abuse issues or for continuing to believe it after the court disbelieves it, um, and that retaliation really serves to silence both mothers and um, their advocates, and that is a disaster for children.
1: Yeah, yeah. Are we? We are starting to see some of these children mature and come out and speak about um, their placement with an abusive parent, with an abusive father. Um, but not very much. I would think we'd be seeing more and more of that. Why don't we see more of, of adult children who were put in that situation talking about it? Has,
3: uh, y- y- why don't we see that? Well, I imagine that is because uh, for the same reason as we don't, you know, what one, one-fifth uh, of children uh, are suffering from sexual abuse in this country. Some of those are going through the custody courts, but you don't you don't hear one in five people saying I was sexually abused. These are these are subjects that are really difficult to talk about in public Still, They're not. You know, if you sit down at uh, at a dinner party and you say to the person next to you, you know, I was raped when I was 10. It doesn't really contribute to a good dinner party conversation. I don't think most people really want to talk about these things. And frankly, I don't think most people really want to hear about these things either.
1: I think that's probably more key than not wanting to talk about it.
3: But, Heather,
2: you know, the thing is, think about what we're talking about. We're talking about cases in which the courts gave control and custody to the abuser limited the contact with the mother. So the children go into survival mode, and they push this information deep inside themselves. They're afraid to talk about it, Um, and, you know, it silences them. And to some extent, the courts may prefer that because then the children aren't talking about the mistakes that the courts made. Um, you know, the, the courageous kids were and are the children who have spoken up, have talked about their experiences, and they represent so many more children who are not speaking about it. And, of course, when children are exposed to domestic violence and child abuse in particularly when they're not uh, given any kind of therapy and they're sent to the father, which says that society approves of this, you know, a lot of them wind up on drugs or alcohol or go into crime and stuff like that and um, have early deaths or, in other ways, are are silenced. Um, So there's, there's a lot of horrific reasons for, you know, that we don't hear more of it. But I would say, you know, the courageous kids are just a wonderful... Organization And they have done training for judges, and it's really hard for judges to, you know, disagree or to, you know, uh, try to challenge them because there's this moral responsibility. The judges were supposed to protect these children, and these children are saying, I suffered unspeakable damage because you didn't understand my case.
1: With the judges, though, it's, in my experience, my limited experience, and and I've I've met some wonderful judges, but it seems to me that judges, as you alluded to before, really don't want to hear when they've made a mistake. They really don't want to hear that. Maybe none of us wants to hear that. But in the case of judges, isn't that a pretty important thing for them to be able to get it if they've made a mistake? Um, That's just my personal observation, but is that what, what we we're seeing in general, and, and I'm really heartened that you're doing so many trainings with judges. But I, I've, I've, I did a, a training in King County, Washington, with uh, as a guardian ad litem. Never worked as a guardian ad litem, but during that three-day training, I was kind of astounded at what was taught about domestic violence. We had a really good presenter, and then after that presenter left, um, it, it it just kind of fell on deaf ears and we live in a good county this is a great county i mean if you're going to have a domestic violence situation king county washington is probably one of the better places you could be to go through a divorce or child custody and yet there was this distinct closing of the eyes closing of the ears Uh, you know people don't want to hear it and in my experience judges don't want to hear it so how are you getting past that how are you educating judges
2: You know, we were having exactly that conversation with the National Council, and they were telling us that they do trainings which are voluntary, and the judges that come to that want to be there, care about this information, listen, and and do really good things, but they also do trainings that are mandatory where the judges don't want to be there, and those judges don't pay attention, you know, are hostile, and so they don't get anything, and of course, A lot of these judges think they know everything and they've spent their whole career hearing misinformation and they're not open to hearing something different, which is sort of the opposite of what judges should be like. Um, It's one of the reasons I really love the Safe Child Act is that when we pass a new law that requires very different practices and approaches Uh, Based on the experience in Colorado and elsewhere, we expect that all the judges will now want to get the training, learn about the research, because they have to figure out how to implement the new law. So we think that the Safe Child Act is going to change the atmosphere and the uh, approach in the family courts, which is very much needed. Before
1: we start talking in depth about the Safe Child Act, though, I would like to just reiterate, um, we've talked about the Sanders Saunders study and how that really revealed some pretty egregious situations in courts and child custody. We talked about um, Joan Meyer's study that just recently came out, and, you know, what, what she found was very alarming. But you also mentioned in our notes here uh, Bartlow, and I must confess I'm not familiar with Bartlow uh, as far as research. Could you just briefly explain what that is?
2: Um, Andrew, do you want to do it or do you want me to? Go ahead, Barry. Okay. Um, What Dr. Bartlow did was she followed up on uh, 175 child murders by fathers involved in contested custody in a two-year period. And what she did was she interviewed judges and court administrators in the communities where these tragedies occurred and she asked the question that i think is the most important question about that which is in response to the tragedy in your community what have you done to create reforms to better protect children because I mean, you would think that's exactly what the response ought to be i mean who wants to sit still when children are being murdered by abusers yeah and It was interesting that, you know, we couldn't um, subpoena the judges. So Diane spoke with usually the best judges in the community. The the courts would refer her to the judge who had the most training and the most interest in domestic violence. So these, these were judges who were very knowledgeable about domestic violence, really good judges, and yet the answer to the question was nothing, because they assumed that the tragedy in their community was an exception. And it really goes to the practice in the courts of looking at each issue and each case separately, and so they miss the patterns. And experts in domestic violence know that the way to understand domestic violence is to look for the patterns.
1: Andrew,
3: do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Yes. I, I think that um, what we've been talking about is changing a culture. There's the culture that we all live in where domestic violence and child abuse and other forms of trauma are kind of rude to talk about. That's, there's one culture. But there's another culture that exists within the custody court. And I spoke to a retired judge from the custody courts in California. And she, she, a female judge, said to me um, that she grew up in a system in the courts. It's no different if you work for the post office or IBM or uh, the local plumbing firm. You grow up in a system. That organization has a way of doing things. It has expectations. It gives you expectations. And so changing these cultures takes an awful lot of work. And I think we, uh, Colorado, where a similar bill to the Safe Child Act was passed, that when you change the law, then judges will rush for training because they know that they're out of date. They know that that culture has changed. They know that they need to get ahead of the problem. And so by implementing new laws, we will change that adverse culture that today children are being sentenced by, protective mothers are having to live through.
2: So,
1: all right, we've described the problem. and We've described it, I think, quite thoroughly. Um, and hopefully everybody listening is grieving over that situation. Now let's go to the hopeful part of this interview, and that is the Safe Child Act. What is it? What is it designed to do? Where does it stand? When will it happen? Who wants to go first? Andrew, Barry? I'll, I'll,
3: take, I'll take the, the first uh, part of that, and then I'll pass it to Barry, if I may. Okay, um, terrific. The Safe Child Act is, is starting to happen. That's the really, really good news. We've introduced the Safe Child Act in, in two states, uh, Hawaii and Pennsylvania. It'll be introduced uh, later this year in New York. Um, we're in discussions in Washington State, where you are right now, with legislators about introducing it there. There's um, a major uh, discussion happening right now in Utah with um, uh, a very diverse group of professionals from all walks from domestic violence agencies to the judiciary, to the legislator, etc., working out how to implement the safe child act there. And the safe child act at its core tells the courts that there is nothing more important that they have to consider than the health and safety of children. Now, as i've been talking to legislators about this there's usually around this point in the conversation a very sort of surprised look comes over their face and then they nearly always say do you mean that's not the case today and so they don't know yeah i mean wouldn't you think it was the case
1: yeah, one would think, unless one has heard experiences um, that we've been talking, like we've been talking about, that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And Barry, perhaps
3: you um, uh, uh, would like to talk about how that happens and how we can uh, ensure that the courts do make the health and safety of children the priority. Well, presently, every
2: state has a group of factors that the court is required to consider in making decisions about custody and visitation and certainly the health and safety of children is included but there are many other factors and very often courts focus on other factors that are much less important i'm sure joan meyer mentioned that in her research they found that the courts placed more importance on alienation issues than domestic violence and child abuse or child sexual abuse, uh, which is Absolutely.
3: clearly wrong.
2: And it shows the, the culture that they've, they've, from constant repetition of misinformation, they have come to believe that that's best for children when it's not close. So the first thing the Safe Child Act does is says, in all custody and visitation decisions, the health and safety of children must be the first priority. And that means, um, you know, protecting children from physical assaults and injuries. But based on the ACE research, it also means you need to protect them from a variety of adverse childhood experiences that lead to fear and stress that lead to shorter lives and a lifetime of health and other problems. Um, so that's, that's the fundamental start of the Safe Child Act. Then we say we, we require that you start using current scientific research. You know, we've been talking about Ace and Saunders and Bartlow and Meyer. If the court professionals were familiar with that, were focused on that, they would come w- up with very different decisions. So we're saying you need to uh, do that. Um, one of the key findings in Saunders is that we need a multidisciplinary approach. You know, Psychologists, psychiatrists that the courts rely on are experts in psychology, mental illness. When that is the major issue in the case, you know, they can be really helpful. But they generally are not expert in domestic violence, Certainly not child sexual abuse, and so you should be using the expert who has the specific knowledge and experience that you need instead of using the equivalent of a general practitioner for a patient that has cancer or heart disease and so
1: and we that I think is a huge issue very I mean, as you are well aware i 've just been you know, uh, spending an eternity trying to get my Ph.D. in psychology. And throughout all these years, I've never, ever had a class specifically about domestic violence, Um, never. And I've been working on this sucker for years. Um, You would think that I would have seen that, but no, not at all.
3: Well, of course, domestic violence is not a psychological condition. Domestic violence is um, caused by... um, sexism. It's caused by a belief that men are superior to women.
1: Well, there are a lot of things that are not caused by psychological conditions, and yet their impact on psychology is significant. And we study that as, as people who are learning and training to be practitioners. And yet, nothing. Maybe it's mentioned in a class here and there, and that's about it.
2: Right. So, I mean, the point is that using domestic violence advocates, as experts in domestic violence, which Saunders said no more than the court professionals that are now being used, you know, would be beneficial. When you have a child sexual abuse case, get somebody who specializes in that, who who works full-time on child sexual abuse, and then you won't have, you know, the mistake of assuming all these charges are false
1: yeah um it it's just a, a real egregious situation with the you know uh professionals the guardians ad items and the psychologists and you know i mean it, the fact that they are so uninformed about oftentimes so uninformed about situations around domestic violence is just really appalling to me personally and the uh safe child act would help remedy that situation
2: yes and you know and part of the problem is they're uninformed, but they think they know everything. They've taken a, court, a <laughs> workshop or two, so they're not ready to listen. Um, and so, you know, we, that's part of what we need to change. And so we, we would also, the Safe Child Act would provide um, training for judges and other court professionals. It would provide funds for domestic violence advocates to participate both in training professionals and to serve as an expert witness. And one of, the, one of the parts to the Safe Child Act is an early hearing that is limited to the issue of family violence. Because if, say, the father has committed domestic violence or child abuse and assuming the mother is safe, we don't need to look at anything else. We know what the outcome should be. You know, the mother needs to have sole custody and the father should be limited to supervised visits and should, you know, be working to change his behavior, which would require an accountability program. Um, And since less than 2% of mothers' claims are false, that would mean that the large majority of these cases would be resolved in an hour or two which now takes many months or years, wasting enormous resources, you know, both for the litigants and for the courts. And best of all, the outcome would be much better for children. So it's a win-win situation. Um, So, I mean, those are the essential parts of the Safe Child Act. And I've heard many judges say to me, you know, If the legislature didn't like what we were doing, they would tell us so. And the Safe Child Act does exactly that. And that's why I think it's going to change the whole atmosphere in the courts.
1: Okay, so you mentioned that Hawaii and Pennsylvania have passed this act, or they are proposing this act?
3: Well, I wish they had passed it. Uh, Hawaii have introduced it, and... uh, Somebody had to go, so Barry and I spent a week lobbying over there last year. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, introduced it in the last session. It will be reintroduced in Pennsylvania later this year. Um, and we've, we've, um, we, it will definitely be introduced in New York later this year, uh, Utah, Washington State, and Texas are all states that are uh, actively discussing the introduction of the Act right now. In fact, the Act has been written. Uh, in Texas, and the Texas bill is our model bill. Um, and if 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 your listeners want to get involved, and I'm sure they do, want to get involved in passing the Safe Child Act, they can go to uh, StopAbuseCampaign.org, and they can um, uh, sign up for our newsletter and get in touch with us they can get in touch with us through facebook or twitter or linkedin um but i would encourage them to reach out because if we all work together on passing this bill we'll get it done an awful lot faster we'll protect an awful lot more children
1: well and i'm here to say that in washington state in my state you need me in olympia you let me know and i'll be there Um, This is a huge issue. Children are just so devastated by some of these awful decisions. Um, I think the Safe Child Act is more than just an innovative idea. It's going to save lives. I think it will save lives. So if you need my help in Washington, you know how to get hold of me, and I will be there. Um, Kathleen
3: Kathleen Stevens is our chapter leader in Washington State, and I will put you in touch.
1: Okay, great. Um, okay, so just to recap, okay, the um, egregious situations with child custody, and and there are other egregious decisions in courts. There are other egregious situations that occur in domestic violence. There are other all sorts of problems. But for this Safe Child Act, we are talking about custody, and custody as it's granted in courts by oftentimes judges and the personnel who are not aware and who do not understand the harm that is done to children when they are placed in custody with abusers. In order to try and counteract that, and I know a lot of people have been trying different things, different methodologies, different ways and programs to try and deal with courts and the situations that have have grown up around domestic violence, but the Safe Child Act, would be, first and foremost, make it the law that when a judge decides custody for a child, that the health and safety of that child has to be the prominent, the primary decision maker in that custody placement. Am I saying that correctly?
2: Yeah, that that, that is that is exactly right, that what should have been done all the time is that The health and safety of children is the first priority. And what that means is if the judge doesn't do it, it can be meaningfully reviewed by the appellate court and reversed. Because right now what happens is the courts defer to the trial judge who has seen the demeanor of the witnesses. But if the law says you must make health and safety preeminent, and the judge doesn't do it, that's reversible error, which in turn will discourage trial judges from making bad decisions like that.
1: Now, you mentioned that the Safe Child Act uh, would also provide funding for training of judges, etc. Any chance that it provides funding for... People who have to file appeals, I mean, I know that that's probably ridiculous, but it would sure be nice if, you know, people got a little help, a little hand in, in some of these issues. Um, Child, Safe Child Act, I suppose, doesn't couldn't uh, possibly encompass anything like that, right?
2: Uh, it does not have that. It does have funding for the DV agencies that would no, participate.
1: Great, great. Andrew, we have a couple of minutes left. Anything that you would like to add about um, Stop Abuse Campaign and the Safe Child Act?
3: Well, I think that as a child growing up, one has an expectation that one will be treated fairly, that one would get justice, and that one would be protected by the courts of the United States. When I was first told about this problem, I refused to believe it because we were talking about the United States courts. How could they be getting it so wrong so much of the time? So here at the Stop Abuse Campaign, we're, putting a, a, we're going to put a stop to that through the Safe Child Act, but we're also stopping those other nine forms of trauma as well. And they're equally important um, in terms of children and their experiences and and in terms of payers and the taxpayer burden that we all share from trauma, the effects of trauma uh, when children grow up. And I think that that's something that's really important about the Safe Child Act. When judges make these decisions and they lead to children being further traumatized, we as taxpayers are picking up the bill for that. When judges make decisions that lead to children being murdered, we as taxpayers are picking up the bill for that. So this is absolutely about the health and safety of children, but it's also about the health and safety of taxpayers and reducing taxpayer burdens so that we can put money that we're today wasting and reallocate it to areas like education things that are positive from ch- for children, just by stopping these negative things from happening. That's what we do at the Stop Abuse Campaign. And I would encourage everyone who's listening to go to our website, stopabusecampaign.org. They'll find details of the Safe Child Act and our other programs there. And get involved because working together, we can stop this from happening. And
1: don't ever make the mistake. Of thinking that this could not apply to you maybe you're not abused maybe you your 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 children are not abused but you will encounter people who have been abused you will maybe your child will fall in love and want to marry somebody who has this huge background I mean none of us is immune from the impact of some of these court decisions and none of us is immune to the effects of abuse even if we've managed to avoid it in our personal lives so um, I think sometimes we get a little smug and we think, well, if that doesn't if that doesn't affect me, you know, I'm not going to court and I'm not having a custody battle, so that doesn't have anything to do with me, you know. But in fact, we shouldn't be so smug because it affects all of us. Thank you, Andrew Barry. Final words about the Stop Abuse campaign.
2: Um, Heather, Heather, thank you the for the Child Act. Heather, thank you for focusing on the crisis in the custody court system. Um, You know, very frankly, I hate all of the stories we hear day after day of courts making bad decisions that cause children to suffer, and it is exciting that we finally have a comprehensive plan that's based on good research that can save these children, and it's long past time to do that.
1: Thank you. I think that one of the important things that I would like to tell our listeners is that when you do your research, do your research, but be cautious about the sources of the information that you are getting. If you Google domestic violence, fully three-quarters of the information that comes up is not necessarily verifiable or legitimate. Be very cautious and make sure that you're going to things like the Stop Abuse Campaign. Make sure that you're going to uh, your local DV agency or the um, uh, domestic violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Make sure you're going to a legitimate and verifiable source when you're trying to learn more about this and about what's happening. Because just Googling things, you're going to get a lot of misinformation, and unfortunately that's the kind of misinformation that led probably a generation of children to be um, uh, suffer under accusations of parental alienation. So be cautious. Barry, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for being one more light in trying to uh, uh, open up and expose what's happening with children in our court system. Thank you very much, and thank you for the work that you do.
3: Thank you, Andrew.
1: Please join us again next time on PreWeb.com freeway
0: It happens every summer Stargazers delight in the opportunity to view constellations that can't be seen in winter while car lovers delight in the opportunity to own one of our stars. At the Mercedes-Benz summer event you can get the Mercedes-Benz of your dreams for less than you thought possible like the supremely intelligent E-Class sedan or the awe-inspiring GLC. Don't miss this once-in-a-summertime opportunity. Hurry in to our summer event. Visit MBUSA.com to learn more. Mercedes-Benz, the best or nothing. It happens every summer. Stargazers delight in the opportunity to view constellations that can't be seen in winter while car lovers delight in the opportunity to own one of our stars. At the Mercedes-Benz Summer Event, you can get the Mercedes-Benz of your dreams for less than you thought possible, like the supremely intelligent E-Class sedan or the awe-inspiring GLC. Don't miss this once-in-a-summertime opportunity. Hurry in to our summer event. Visit MBUSA.com to learn more. Mercedes-Benz, the best or nothing.